Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 121 of Good Humans Podcast with the legend, Noah Yang, this guy has such a big heart and he's doing some really, really impactful things in the world. You're going to love this episode. Big thank you to our sponsors, Drink a Rapper, the brain performance drink, all developed by neuroscientists, millions of dollars of clinical studies have gone into this stuff, which you can find all on their website, drinkarepper.com. Learn about the brain drink, all natural ingredients, black currant juice is how it tastes and you can absolutely love it. If you use the code GOODHUMAN over on their website, you can get a massive 25% off all of their products. So go check that out and yeah, I'm sure you're going to really enjoy it. I have so many of you now messaging me saying how much you're enjoying it. So yeah, love hearing about it. Also, if you want to learn more about the Good Human Factory, head over to the website and you can find a bit more about the workshops that I've been running, which have just gotten so popular lately. So many school ones, so many corporate ones. And yeah, I just love getting to come and share my message. The testimonials and feedback have just been unbelievable. So if you want to learn more about that, head over to thegoodhumanfactory.com. You can click on the workshops page and you can go down and have a look at the different workshops I run. Uh, Yeah, little mental health workshops. You're going to love it. Also, you can use the code podcast over on the website for thegoodhumanfactory.com and get a big 25% off everything. So go check out the website. It would mean the world to me. And yeah, love you. Okay, today, Noah, this guy is such a legend. He's the founder and CEO of We Are Mobilize, which is a homelessness charity aiming to yeah make a massive impact and end homelessness here in Australia. Noah is from down in Melbourne and he, yeah, had a really cool upbringing, single mother household. Uh, He said he had, yeah, some moments that were quite challenging, but then really has just lived a life of purpose is the way that I see it. Studied business and went overseas um, at the end of university and studied over in China and some other countries overseas and just got to really understand the world and what's out there. And then when he came home, he was in Melbourne and saw yeah, just kept seeing people who were homeless and would go down and wanted to make a difference and have a chat to them. And that's just continued to evolve into the point where he started a full charity. He has massive teams in um, all states. He's doing such a huge, yeah, a huge thing to impact so many. And then the thing that really put We Are Mobilized on the map is the fact that Ned Brockman ran across Australia last year and raised over $2 million and he raised it for We Are Mobilized. Their biggest donation prior to Ned's run was about $5,000, Noah said. So a huge influx of cash has meant that Noah's been diligently working on how to make that money really work and have a huge impact to, yeah, the Australian community of homeless people. So I'm so excited to watch what he does with the funding, what his team's going to create and, yeah, the impact that it's going to have. It was so cool getting to know his story. Um, we can all really learn from it and we can all maybe pick up a few skills and a few little positive things that we can do to try and have an impact with the homeless community we do have here in Australia. If you enjoyed today's episode, do me a huge favor. Just send it to one friend. There's 
thousands of you who listen to it every day. And if everyone just told one person, just sent them a link. It's really cool, actually. On Spotify and Apple, you can click share and then you can click message. And it just literally pops up in a text message. Send it to someone who you think might get a bit of value out of it. And yeah, that's how we spread this podcast around. I know the impact that these conversations have on me and so many of you. I get messages every day, which I absolutely love. So if you're enjoying it, send me a message on Instagram. But most importantly, leave five stars. Give us a little review on Apple or Spotify. And yeah, hit that subscribe button. But let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Noah Yang. Hey, you going, mate? Very well, mate. It's good to be here. Mate, thank you for having me in your little office here in Melbourne. It was a nightmare to get a park, but I made it. <laughs> um, but man, thanks so much for having a chat. You do some amazing work in the world, um, which I'm very excited to hear about. So maybe to quickly kick off the podcast, who are you and what do you do? Uh, yeah, my name's Noah. I'm the founder and CEO of We Are Mobilize. Uh, we're focused on like, developing solutions for those experiencing homelessness across Australia. Right. Very well put. And I can't wait to hear all about it and how we got there. But I do kick off Good Humans podcast with the same question for everyone. And I'm going to be excited to hear your answer to this. So what are you grateful for right now in your life? Uh, that's a cool question. Uh, there is there is a lot. Something that's really interesting, I kind of talked about it before actually, is seeing what's going on with the Matildas um, and how the entire country is behind this thing. I've been talking about it to everyone um, recently because... I just think like at Mobilize, connection is at the core of everything that we do. We're so focused on that. And like seeing a community come together and rally around it is so, so special. So I'm grateful for seeing how our nation can come together and like hope it continues on to in, into every like facet of life. Yeah, so, I love that. Yeah. It's been really cool to watch, hey, the way that like watching all the reaction videos is yeah. crazy. And for anyone listening now, this is going to come out after hopefully the Matildas have won the World Cup. That's there you go. We'll <laughs> manifest it. But we're recording on the day before the semi final. So, man. I'm excited to get to know your story. It fascinates me. I love when young people are really trying to give back in the world. It's quite often. I think we we had a Zoom a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. lining this chat up. And I think I probably mentioned it to you then. It really interests me people who are in their 20s and quite young because I feel very relatable to that. I feel like quite often people later in their life find this mountain to climb of service and you've been climbing it since what you've been doing. We are mobilized since you're 21, if my math is correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's been seven or eight years now. Yeah. Incredible. So let's go back to the start there. Let's learn who Noah is from a kid. So where'd you grow up? What was your life like as a kid, siblings, family life, as much as you're willing to share that kind of shaped you and let's call up until you're a teenager. Yeah, sure. So I had, uh, grew up in Melbourne, uh, in Blackburn. Uh, we had like a really tight knit family. So it was just mum uh, and then my sister, she's a younger sister to me. Uh, we didn't have heaps and heaps and heaps. Uh, but I guess the one thing that we did have was like a tremendous amount of love, uh, particularly like from mum. She was like the type of person who like, she is the type of person who I guess just like makes you believe that you can do anything and that you're capable of really accomplishing anything. So um, yeah, it was very tight knit. We didn't have like heaps of like extended family, but yeah, a really warm, loving place is what I remember a lot of. Amazing. So Having a younger sibling can sometimes yeah, be a beautiful thing, but also can be a little bit tricky. Talk me through what you can remember. Like, let's talk about like primary school and stuff. How'd you find school from a young kid? Yeah. Um, I, like I really enjoyed it. Like, like most, I guess, young boys in Australia, well, young people in Australia, really. I was playing a lot of sport, loved getting out and about, but I think I learned a lot um, growing up, like during school, like I didn't realize until reflecting back, but always felt not unsettled, but never felt like I had that real place, if that makes sense. And I'm not sure whether it was like, uh, how I grew up or, you know, not having a father and things like that is obviously a contributing factor to it, but I never really felt settled until post school, but I always really enjoyed being at school, if that makes sense as well. So it's kind of that dichotomy. Yeah. Interesting. 
tell me about that. Not really having a father, well, not having a father. As much as you're kind of willing to share about that, how was that growing up without, yeah, a father figure in your life? Did you find any difficulties with that? Do you feel like you're uh, like a more feminine side from that? I've got three sisters, so I feel like I grew up very feminine as well. I do have, I'm very lucky. I do have an amazing dad, but I do have three sisters and a mum. So I did have a lot of females around me. But yeah, what was that experience like growing up as a kid without a father? Um. I think for me on reflection, it's probably the type of thing that you don't realize its effects until after, mm. um, like during it, it's just life, right? Yeah. Like whatever situation you're in, you're just experiencing it. But if you think back, like, you know, things like trying to be the class clown, trying to like act out, trying to be like fun and things like that. I think I was just looking for whether it was like attention or validation or just that confirmation that like, you know, this was a place and this is who I was meant to be. So I think during it, it didn't really affect me. But on reflection, I think it was contributing to a lot of the learnings, but it's definitely formulated me into the man I am today. So, you know, it's not a negative, but it was definitely something to experience. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You can obviously tell by the work you do, you're a very caring guy and have that, I guess, feminine side to you where you're trying to yeah, give back and be loving and caring to the people around you and especially the people who are most vulnerable, um, such as the homeless. Let's talk about high school. Where'd you go to high school? What was the high school experience like for you? Yeah, so still in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. High school, I guess it was similar. Like it was just feeding into all of those trends. I've got a good understanding of, I guess, the types of things I wanted to do in life, but never really knew what that would look like. So I started to understand that like, Business was interesting. I really liked um, like sport and things like that. I remember writing on like one of those sheets when I was younger. It was like, what do you want to do? And on one of them, it was like, want to change the world for people, but never really knew exactly what that was like. But I still didn't have that, I guess, final anchor of like where we were going to head. So still discovering as I think the majority of people are during that time. Yeah. What do you think when you got to the pointy end of high school, it's called the last couple of years of high school. What do you think the future was going to look like for you? And then what did yeah. it look like once you jumped out of high school? So I didn't have like a defined goal then. I think it was like very reactive, if that makes sense. It was kind of like, oh, this year's finished. Okay, now we've got to write down our preferences. What are we going to do? Oh, business sounds interesting. I'm going to write that down. So there was never this master plan. I was just getting an idea of like what I enjoyed doing. Um, and then, yeah, so ended up going to uni for business. Uh, did that at Monash, um, enjoyed it. And kind of, I think some of the turning points there was got to do a couple of exchanges overseas. And that was when I realized that life was much bigger than what I'd seen just in Melbourne. Um, so that was where it kind of all really changed and started to formulate a bit more of an idea about like what I wanted to do from there moving forward. Yeah, interesting. I want to rewind back quickly to the fact that you wrote down in a thing that you want to change the world. Where do you think that mindset and where that drive came from was there anything that comes to mind that made you realize oh i want to try and make the world a better place was there anything that happened in your life where you're like i want to try and make an impact yeah so we didn't have a lot or heaps growing up uh particularly i guess growing up in like a single parent household with not a lot you realize that life maybe looks a little different uh than it does to most other people but again it was just what we were used to then obviously like growing up like my father's of african heritage and feeling i guess like not out of place, but feeling like, you know, there's other people in Africa. I remember distinctly remember like people in Africa are going through so much hardship, whether I was seeing ads on TV or whatever that was and realizing that there's other people out there. And if we don't all enjoy the same standard of living, like how can we help bring others towards that? Mm -hmm. So I think it was those two factors coming together. Um, and yeah, they were the two that I distinctly remember for sure. Yeah. Cause I guess that's kind of one of those things that as kids in first world countries, you kind of get told like, oh, there's starving kids in Africa. Yeah. And it's sort of like that age-old saying that like a lot of parents will say to you like make sure you eat your food yeah. there's kids starving in africa so yeah having that heritage like you and understanding that there is 
a lot of places in the world that have it far worse off than us. It, was a good, it sounds like you had a really good perspective, even though you mightn't have had a lot. <laughs> Camera fell over. <laughs> but let's go to, um, in university, you said you went to Monash, you studied business, but you got to do some exchanges. Where'd you go and what were the experiences like there? So first one was to China, which is like obviously wow. very different to anything we'd experienced. Um, China? So mum's from China. Um, So there was, I guess, that longing to kind of experience uh, what that was like. And also doing, I studied international business and obviously seeing kind of the different types of world, the different types of trade and commerce was fascinating there. But really it actually just happened serendipitously because I was just walking along like the top walkway uh, of the university and someone was literally just handing out a pamphlet. And I ended up just having it like putting in your backpack, you know, you take it away. Then I was cleaning out my backpack a few weeks later um, and I was like, Maybe I should just apply for it. So there was actually nothing in the master plan to do that. It happened. It was the best experience I've had. Um, and it was one of those things where I then realized like how much bigger the world was. I discovered what management consulting was. I didn't know what that was before it and put it down on kind of the five-year vision board that this is kind of what I had to do. This is what I wanted to do. Um, and from yeah, there, I guess kind of was had a bit more focus because there was a goal at least to move towards. Whereas in the past, it was like, just keep going day after day towards something. I didn't know what that would look like. What's management consulting? Uh, so it's essentially like, it looks very, very broad, but it's a job where you go in and help like organizations, whether they're businesses, companies, uh, like the government and solves their problems. So they might want to have solutions in terms of like, how do you grow something faster? How do you set up different types of systems? How do we transfer what we're currently doing into a new way? Um, so yeah, you're just consulting for businesses. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. So how long were you in China for? And then you said it was one of the best things you ever did. Why was it so good? Just for those reasons, I guess. Yeah, so it was six months. Um, so it was like a semester. Where'd you go? Uh, it was in Beijing. So we were kind of studying at uh, the university there. And it was just like seeing different people to who you grow up with. Like I think at school, like you're just surrounded by the same people all the time. Like so, like many of my best mates are still from school there. So I like, absolutely love them. But you just only see like one, I guess, form of person the whole time and like going to China there was like people who I'd never would have met before like whether it was from China themselves or different people from universities who saw the worlds in different ways and every single day you're waking up and you've got like all of this stimuli and different types of things happening to your senses and I guess when you're in uncomfortable situations you are forced to think more about yourself and Mm -hmm. so it was like a very introspective thing even though I was like surrounded by new people all the time so it was like giving me that chance to learn about myself. I love that and I've been to China as well. Yeah where did you go? I went to, um, oh, what's it called? I went to an island, um, Shargao Island or something. I just surfed yeah. there ages could, All yeah, I remember yeah. was bloody beetle nut and them just spitting <laughs> beetle nut on the yeah, ground, yeah. like the little thing that yeah. they chew. It's disgusting. But other than that, it was cool. It was interesting. Like you said, it's just so interesting. So different. Hey? Just seeing different <laughs> cultures and realizing like we're so different. I remember um, <laughs> it was wild. I, I, I'll give you a few stories. Yeah, yeah. I, remember. I remember like for one, staying in this hotel that – the beds were pretty much like not even beds. And then the only, and then we'd go have breakfast every day. And there was like this soup that you just wouldn't eat. And then there was like bread that was like cardboard. And then the only thing that I lived off was boiled eggs for like a week. (laughs) And then there was like these little stores, like on the kind of near the beach. Like the carts. Yeah. Yeah. The carts, but these like little stores where you could buy like chicken, but they'd literally have chickens out the back and you'd watch (laughs) them go and break the chicken's neck, pluck the feathers and cook it. And we're just like, oh my God, this is absolutely crazy. (laughs) But yeah, it's just different cultures and we look at it and judge and then kind of, yeah, we, but it's, that's just normal for them. At the yeah. end of the day, we're actually the weird ones. We're the ones with the 26 million population yeah, doing yeah. it so differently to the world. Like yeah. I just spent a bit of time in Europe and you look at like Paris and all these major cities and Lisbon and 
Like they're the ones who are normal. We're the weird yeah. ones when you're really in the in the grasp in the yeah, whole concept yeah. of the world. So yeah, it's interesting. I remember another story from China. It was so scary. I um I was driving this one day, we're in like a taxi. Yeah, yeah. Me and my friends were going to this one place that you could eat that was actually like a bit of a like Western yeah, sort of yeah. hotel. And we're driving in this taxi and it like goes down a side street and we're like, this is a bit weird. And the guy like pulls up to this house, it looked like the slums of like China. And this guy hands him like the biggest wad of cash ever, ever. And we're just like, did we just get sold? Like we're freaking out. Me and my mates in the car were like, we're about to get like kidnapped here. Yeah, yeah. We drove off and we're all good, but it was like the weirdest experience. <laughs> I remember it like yesterday. I was like, oh my God, I'm about to get sold and like disappear. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my few memories of China. Traveling's like, I think you're, cause you're forced to see things that are so different. You realize that like everything might be different, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or wrong. Like yeah. we get just so used to like just our way of living, but then you're right. You go to Europe and it's different. Or then you go to Africa and it's different. You go to China. It's like everyone's just living the, the way they're used to, but we can also like take a little bit from like everything yeah. you see and it can inform like the cool stuff that we're doing here. And I think it's just, that's why I'm so big on gratitude because, and exactly like you were talking about before your heritage of Africa, like we're so lucky here as much as there is tough times like you, like you say, growing up in a single parent household and there is obviously struggle not to discount people's struggle, but far out, we've got a good here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're so lucky. When, yeah. When we use perspective, it's like, wow, we are all like blessed in our own ways. Yeah. yeah. You said you went on a few exchanges. Where else did you go? Uh, so I did six months in a place, a tiny little town uh, called Maastricht in the south of Netherlands. And that was the most wonderful time. It's like a fantasy land. Like it just looks incredible. Uh, it's got like all of those old buildings that you see and just like had the most incredible group out there um, and got to travel around like Europe a fair bit. And so I really, really enjoyed that. That wow. was like towards the end of my uni. Why'd you go there? Was that um, just to get the travel and experience with it too? It was definitely a part of it, but studying international business, I guess <laughs> I told myself that it was going to be useful <laughs> to go over and do it. But obviously it was just like a lot of fun and I really enjoyed that and then did like a one month kind of uh, consulting project over in a country called Malawi in Africa. Um, and that was fascinating just to be able to experience Africa and then spend a bit of time backpacking around there too, just to understand like the heritage. And it was very unique to see the motherland. That was the first time I'd been there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Give me a story about what was it like going back over there? How's that experience? What, um, yeah. What do you remember about that trip that kind of fascinated you or yeah, expanded your mind a little bit? Yeah, I, I, it was a perspective piece, of course, but I guess like, and it's hard to explain this feeling, but like I'd grown up in Australia my whole life and this is home. Like I think we live in the best country in the world. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. love it. But I never realized how, uh, how different it was growing up with like my skin color in Australia until I got back there and I was welcomed there instantly and people were like oh where are you from where's your family from and it was like they actually thought that I was like African well they talked to me as if I was African I never realized that like that felt home as well as Australia yeah. felt like home but I'd never even set foot there so it was almost like I was returning home even though I'd never been there so it was just that interesting kind of like challenging the way that I'd thought about things and you don't even realize what it's like until you look back at it and you're like oh yeah I grew up differently in Australia without even realizing that one bit. Yeah, so interesting, like the change of culture, like that automatic sense of belonging from, I guess, that intuition and, yeah, the, the heritage that you do have there. It's, it's an interesting reflection. I love that. Yeah, yeah. There was – I also remember just like – it happens all the time, but like we'd just go and play soccer with like these kids and like you just pick up a ball, play soccer with them. There's like 20 of them and then after the game, they'd like take you back to – they're literally just living in huts uh, and their family would be there and they'd all welcome us back. And like they might have like one chicken or something like that. And they were saving this for a huge occasion. And where there's, you know, foreigners coming over and they'd like cook the chickens, a tiny chicken just for like, this was meant to be for the whole family. And they're like, you are our guest. Let's have this. And you break bread and just enjoy dinner. And it was like, for them, the perspective of like the connection, the community, being able to be with people 
was the most important thing. It didn't matter about like what they had. It was like when people are there, we want to enjoy that together. And that's, it was so special every time. Yeah, I love that, man. And it's something that we're like, like in Australia and the Western world, we're building bigger fences from our neighbor. That's like, we're trying to push this individualism and making everyone work so much more and like everything's getting so expensive, the cost of living that it's like, we're just like disappearing from the amount of time that we actually get to spend with the people that we love and building community. So yeah, it's, it's a good ch- reality check sometimes when you go overseas and go, oh wait, there's people that live a completely different way. And, yeah, it's, and yeah. it's nice. And they were, they seemed at least as happy, if not happier in many cases, having far, far, far less. So it's a reminder that we don't need it all. Like sometimes we just need good people around us and good situations and like good conversation. Yeah, I love that. End of uni, where'd you think you were going? What'd life look like when you finished uni? How old were you when you finished uni? And then, yeah, how far after that chapter did uh, We Are Mobilized start? Yeah, so I would have been 23 or 24 after that. So we'd started Mobilized. So started. Yeah, okay, yeah. so this comes chapter before. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about when you first um, experienced the devastation, I guess, in the pan- the pandemic the epidemic we have of homelessness here that people don't really understand when did you learn that it's special for you to learn that at such a young age good on you. yeah yeah so i guess like it's interesting right because we always kind of know it um but we don't internalize it until we really experience it so i remember it was second year uni so i would have been 19 at the time uh and we had like courses or classes in the cbd and there was just someone sitting on the side of the road and you know i've probably walked past someone like that hundreds of times before but i don't know why but this time i was like wait, this is an issue. Like, why is this happening in Australia? And so as soon as that happened, I like, remember just calling up heaps of different places. Uh, and eventually like a bakery got back to us. I was like, can we have some bread? And we had like literally no plan at that stage. We were like, what are we going to do? Um, and then one of my other best mates, I called him up. And I was like, do you want to just go out tonight and see if there's anything that we can do to help? And so we just went back out to the city and just started like sitting with the people we're meeting um, and tried, I think I told you this story, we gave them like the um, loaves of bread, um, but we realized that we had nothing there. There was no jam, there was no butter, there was no knife. We literally just had like big uncut loaves of bread, which is like how grassroots we were. And as soon as we handed them out to the people um, that we met, they're like, we don't want any of this food. We don't need uncut loaves of bread. But they all just said like, come and sit with us, like hang out. I want to have a conversation. Like one lady said she hadn't spoken to someone in days which is like literally madness when you consider it. So we just started sitting with the people we're meeting and just like having chats and having conversations and pretty quickly realized that like, this is something we can all give back. We don't need heaps of money. We don't need heaps of items, but we can actually just come and have chats. And so I brought out another group of friends and more groups of friends. And that was really where the mobilized journey started from. Wow. So yeah, let's talk about as that chapter continues, because obviously you need to work a job to support yourself. This is just a passion project probably for a long time until probably the recent years when, yeah, I guess we'll talk about Ned Brockman and the impact that's had on your organization um, as we catch up to that. But yeah, what what did that next chapter look like where you're giving back, you found this passion to really help people who are struggling, but then also trying to balance uh, obviously a business degree. You want to still have ambition in the world to yeah, be successful in the light of what we've kind of made the conscription of what success is in our culture. But yeah, tell me that next period once you started to realize the problem we had you realize that you could make an impact and then you still have to balance the way of life that most of us are kind of pushed towards. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've reflected like a lot on it, like trying to think about it. I think like what was really special about this was like I'd done like a few different projects uh, back then, but I realized that as soon as I'd had those first conversations, 
I was drawn to this unlike anything else I'd ever done. Um, and so even though like, yeah, we were busy, like I was still studying, I was still working and still doing all of that. It never felt like work. And I'm sure like you feel very similarly about what you're doing as well. It's kind of, you're just waking up and then you're like, as soon as you have spare time, like, I just want to keep pushing this forward. I just want to keep being able to do it. And so it started very like organically, like we took out one group of friends, then another I remember like this was around about the time we had uni exam time um, and obviously mobilized. There was nothing there at the start. There was not even an idea um, back then, but I had a uni exam um, and like just after we'd done this initial outreach, I remember just sitting there and I'd never made a website or anything before. And I like taught myself how to make a website. I was staying up to like very, very late, like probably was like two, three or four. Um, and mum came up. She's like, what are you doing? You're still studying for your exam. And I'd realized that I had not even looked at my books properly because I was literally just learning how to make a website because I was like so drawn by all of this. So like, yeah, there was a lot of work. There was a lot of time just bit by bit by bit, but it kind of just happened through the process of just wanting to see like how we could help. And that was like the main aim was like, is there anything we can do to help? If so, how do we keep pushing that forward bit by bit by bit? That was kind of the focus. No, good on you, man. It's just such a like pure place that you can see it's come from. I want to, before we continue with the story, I want to use this as a bit of an opportunity to educate something that I personally feel, and I know most, not most, but I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners that feel this way as well, but going up to someone who's homeless can be quite intimidating. What sort of tips do you have for someone um, that, yeah, might feel that ooh, fear that, I mean, uh, the, the, the uncleanliness that obviously comes with living on the streets, the uh, yeah, the judgment that we obviously have based on the movies that we see and the basically the media and everything, like there's such a stigma around it. What advice do you have for someone who wants to help but has that kind of fear of going up to a stranger and just asking them how they're going? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think like there's so many different ways to think about it. Like the first one is actually like the stereotypes that we have are just not true. So if you look at just literally the data of it, around 40% of people experiencing homelessness are under 25. Wow. Um, and then around about 40% are actually women as well. So that stereotype that you might see in the movies, as you said, of that man drinking out of like a brown paper bag at the park bench is like scruffy and all of that. It's not the reality. Like there's so many facts basis to homelessness and then when you're having the conversations like we say simple tips when you go over to someone get down to eye level say good day and just have a chat and you don't need to expect anything from them if you want an easy thing to do you can bring an icebreaker so we recommend you know bringing a cup of coffee bringing a sandwich or just asking is there anything that we can do but i think like the easiest most simple tip that i've realized is if you're going up to someone and you're doing good and you have good intentions Generally, most people are going to welcome that. And that's the same as if you're on an aeroplane and you sit next to someone and you say, g'day, how are you? Mostly people will be like, good. If they don't mm. want to chat, they'll say, don't worry about it. If you're at the library and you say g'day to someone, people want to chat. The people on the streets are exactly the same as you and I. They are no different. And I think that stereotype of like, oh, it might be a different convo versus someone at the pub or at the beach. That's what we need to challenge. It's just a chat the same way that we're having a convo now. Yeah, it's so... Yeah, it's something that I'm going to, after this chat, really try and lean more into and yeah. Yeah, just try and have a bit more of a chat with people who are in those situations. You mentioned real briefly the statistics there. When did you first start to, obviously you saw it firsthand, you saw this person that you kept walking past and you had a chat to them and realized the feel good that it gave you and the intention to go and try and help. When did you start to look in the, into the statistics? How accurate are the statistics? how accurate are the stats and yeah what sort of stats do you think is important for the listeners to hear to understand the yeah the depth of the problem that we do have with homelessness yeah it's really good question so i think like what's important to understand about the stats the first thing is that people uh, on the streets who are like rough sleeping is what they're defined as and they're the people that you'd seen the cbd yeah. walking around it's only around six percent of the total people who are experiencing homelessness in australia yeah, see that's a big that's yeah. 
already like such a I my mind, and I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners' mind is that that the the visible homelessness is more than like 50, 60%, but no, it's tiny, okay? Yeah. So that's like, and that's where you get the figure of 122,000 are homeless. So in the CBD, like you might see a few, but there is tens of thousands across the country, whether like in my local area, there's a group or there was a group of people who lived in the scoreboard of the local AFL club. That was where they went to sleep. Um, and like, so then that's called primary homelessness. Secondary homelessness is you're living in place to place. You don't have permanent accommodation. So you might be couch surfing, you might be in your car, whatever that looks like. Right. And then the third one is essentially where it's non-suitable accommodation. So it's p- like below the minimum standards. It's overcrowded, it's unsafe. It doesn't have the minimum standards of what you need. And all of these people are defined as homeless. Um, and then when you think about all of those stats, that's where you get the people who are under 25, all of that. So I think, yeah, people would just, need to reassess like what the image of homelessness is and realize it's not just that small stereotype there's so many people and it's continuing to grow which is the sad thing we've just had the recent abs data out and it didn't get any better over the past five years which is really sad yeah wow so yeah it's just crazy it's something like you said the the visibility i guess of people on the street is where you hear the like politicians and like people being like we're gonna clean up the streets like blah 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 but then it's like that's actually not the biggest part of the not problem but that's not the that's the visible stuff but it's mm-hmm. like okay how can we solve the people who are couch surfing the people who are living below the poverty line the people who are really struggling because then once we help them then the people who are on the streets kind of get to at least i guess move up classes of homelessness and there's more opportunities and more space and more resources to help these people as long as we move everyone up that kind of line which there's enough money in the country there's enough you know what I mean? There's there's obviously the solution out there, but it just comes back to who is going to actually do the work, which is amazing what you guys are doing. So let's talk about that next chapter from the inception of just helping out, walking around, helping some people, bringing a group of mates. What's the timeline of We Are Mobilized the next 12 to 24? Like let's call it the first three, four years. Yeah, for sure. So we focused on like outreaches. That was the core of what we did. And um, outreach is going out to those people who are on the streets trying to help. Yeah, exactly. That's what like people, I guess, would know us for. Like on the Instagram, that's what they see us really focusing on. It's like handing out care packages and just sitting with people. And like our slogan is connection for change. So it's not just the items we're giving, but we want to spend time really having mm. those conversations. So we did that. Uh, and then New South Wales was the second state we added. So we obviously started in Victoria. Then we've got a team in Canberra. And that was really the first few years uh, until COVID. COVID, that was obviously had that work building a team you just reached out or people reached out to you go and we want to help out in different um states so yeah how did how did you start to build and create this team of people who are trying in all different states to make their difference yeah so i think like it's important to like reflect on the fact that mobilize was completely volunteer run we have the most incredible group of people who just love making a difference like just like-minded people who are like how can we help and in what way so every time like had some friends in sydney um the miller brothers they were incredible they like built the entire organization up there and then same with canberra just some incredible people who went over and just said like how can we help out so yeah that just kind of be the pillar we'd have like some items that we can send up and they would just start doing what we're doing and replicating it and we'd just make sure that it looked fairly similar each time and had you launched like as a charity and stuff all the way back then at the start when you built the website and stuff you went straight into that so we didn't get charity status which is really interesting until uh 2020 during covid uh because obviously doing outreach it's fairly hard to do that when the world's in lockdown so we're like we're either going to do nothing or work out like how we can continue to progress forward and so we did like the incorporation we got the charity status and like formalize our structures Mm. so that when covid was finished we were going to be ready to i guess take that next step so that happened during the lockdown so prior that you were just a non-for-profit going out and doing good things could people donate before then or no not really no yeah 
off the own yeah. your own money just yeah yeah so we just kind of solo funding it through that yeah so you guys are legend i love that it makes my heart so warm that there's people <laughs> who do that sort of stuff really trying to go out there just literally to help people without obviously once you build a charity status there's a way that you can somewhat pay yourself a wage so you can continue to grow and i think it's um something that people forget that with charities they say oh people pay themselves it's like yeah but if they don't get paid then they can't do the work it's like yeah, we all yeah. have to survive so yeah let's talk about 2020 that was that was very similar actually to what happened with me with the good human factory i'd started to build but then all my workshops stopped yeah. so i was like okay what's the next stage for me but i looked at going the charity route but i don't have a team at all it's all me and i was like i gotta get a board of directors i gotta get this and then i got some advice from people and i was like you know what I want to keep it really slim for now. So I didn't go that way. But yeah, tell me about 2020. And obviously that's one of the times where homelessness is obviously still happening. Just because the world stops doesn't mean that homelessness stops. How hard was that to recognize that there's people really struggling? People are locked down in Melbourne like crazy, but then there's still people stuck out on the streets. What would, um yeah, what was that next stage going through building the charity status and that period through 2020, Yeah, we spent like, I guess like a lot of time thinking about our identity as an organization because we were very grassroots before that and it was like how do we want to play and like what do we want to do so we spent more time thinking about like advocacy um and we were obviously constrained by only being able to do what we could from behind a computer screen yeah. so it was like how do we do education so we were getting like fact sheets ready getting like investigations into different things this is where we spent a lot of the time in the data like you asked before mm. um also spent time like building up the structures of it so we came in very unorganized and compared to how it looks but obviously after covid we had at least had a bit of an idea about where we wanted to play and how we'd be able to get there uh we spent a lot of time building like some small collaborations with different organizations moving forward it looks very different to how it does now but we always it's in the name of mobilize was we wanted to work with other people and so we really focused on like building those out during covid so that was kind of the main few things amazing so then covid sort of starts to shimmer simmer down you get DGR status. What's the first kind of attempt at fundraising? Because obviously the Ned thing is just something that is a unicorn, but fundraising can be hard to get over the line and encourage people to understand what your organization is doing. The impact you're having can be quite hard. How'd you find that first 12 to 18 months of being DGR status charity so people could donate? It was difficult to get donations. Where'd the money start going? And did that allow you to start to yeah develop the charity like a lot quicker by having donations we were like very um i guess grassroots and like we've always prided ourselves on being like really resourceful and scrappy um so mm. we've never paid for care packages all the way through like we've always like gone donations. out like even from the very first day literally just door knocking on every savers until like someone had some clothes i could give out or the same like literally in the first story like just calling up every organization until someone had some bread to hand out so we always like focus on being like really scrappy and lean so we could be as effective as possible yeah. so we didn't need as much funding there but I, there was a lot of different incredible organizations that wanted to do small fundraisers for us so like a rotary club um white horse rotary they did like a giant monopoly night other people did like barbecues for us schools started doing like you know runathons and things so we had like those small donations that really helped us to keep pushing forward bit by bit by bit i want to quickly go to your story while we're going through this because if you're running this charity but you're not obviously getting paid yet what are you doing for work how are you surviving what um what are you juggling here because i know this isn't obviously a full-time thing for a long time maybe until the last 12 months until the um, yeah big funding from Ned's come in. What are you doing at this time to balance it all? How are you juggling surviving as well? Yeah, sure. So I was working uh, full-time in management consulting at KPMG. Yeah. Uh, 
So yeah, we did like consulting on a range of different like government and corporate clients there. Um, and then during COVID, I wanted, I was doing like months of challenges. So each month I wanted to do different sets of challenges. Um, and then I really liked understanding businesses and like the investing space and things like that. And so I set a challenge to do a hundred videos in a hundred, well, it didn't start as that. I wanted to look into a hundred companies on the ASX in a hundred days uh, and like expand the breadth of understanding and learning about companies to like inform some of the knowledge of what we were doing at Mobilize. And I'd obviously been investing a lot before that and it kind of, it went really well. Uh, and so we ended up doing like 900 daily videos on YouTube and creating a YouTube channel through that time. So they were like the three things we were balancing like Mobilize, KPMG, and then obviously, yeah, that YouTube channel. Was the, so the YouTube channel you have like an investing YouTube channel? It's called ASX Investor. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's massive. So um, I should have done more research. Yeah, it, it went really well. Obviously, during the past few months, like we've kind of started uh, like focusing more on mobilize. But yeah, we did 900 daily videos, which was like one of like That's the biggest huge, pride. Man. Yeah, biggest things I've ever done in terms of like setting a goal and just sticking daily. at it. That is crazy, yeah. bro. Good on you. I'm I, sure, yeah, you understand like the, well, I've done my the one, content I, game. Yeah. Well, I've done my 1% good. Like daily videos is huge. Yeah. How long are the videos? Like um, At the start, they were like 25 minutes and I didn't know how to edit. I'd never used Premiere Pro before. Towards the end, we got them down to like six, eight minute like tight cuts. But um, yeah, they were like, you know, like That's four, five, six hour work. edits a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So bro. that was like the one thing. Did that, that start I mean, making you an income though through YouTube and stuff or like through brand sponsoring to have different things? It was getting like to the stage where we were able to just start kind of considering going full time on it, but then uh, Mobilize <laughs> started kicking off with the Ned thing. So yeah, it, the timing for it was interesting, but I think we learned a lot about like developing a brand, like doing online stuff, like how to do that. And it's informed a lot of what we're doing with Mobilize. So the learnings from that was like, so invaluable as well as like just a chance to get to talk to like the CEOs across the ASX and see how they run businesses, how they scale things, how they grow things. Like it was, yeah, an invaluable experience. Yeah. Man, you're an interesting guy. I love it. It's so <laughs> cool. I love when people have like multiple passions, but also end up with their why. And yeah. that's, um yeah, obviously where you are now. So yeah. 2021 comes around, yeah. life starts moving a bit more forward. Yeah. What sort of programs were you running in 2021 and let's call it 2022 up until the whole Ned thing happened? Because then I'm, yeah. I'm guessing the whole structure changed when you have $2 million come in. Yeah, yeah. In a click of a finger, yeah. everything has to change very quickly. But yeah, what was that year and a half? And I guess how did how, when did you meet Ned Brockman? Yeah, for sure. So we started... Um, I guess thinking about Ned's fundraiser actually earlier, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so, so tell me how you met him and talking yeah. about the fundraiser because it was obviously planned for a while. And yeah, yeah. how did you guys meet? So uh, Ned obviously ran uh, in twenty twenty, yeah, the yeah. fifty for fifty, um, and kind of raised a really good amount of funds. And, and that was for you guys? No, no. So he did that for another charity, um, and then after that, I guess when he came up with this wild idea that he wanted to run across the country, he was thinking about like a different charity, and I think he was looking for more of like a grassroots one as well that he could kind of go on the journey with. Um, and we'd shared some of his posts out and like a couple of the members of Mobilize had like send him some messages and DMs as well. And then one of the guys called uh, Alex Decretney, he I remember distinctly, like he texted me and he's like, oh, there's a guy who wants to do a fundraiser for you. And as I mentioned to you, we'd had like barbecues, we'd had like sausage sizzles, we'd had like a giant Monopoly night. I think the biggest fundraiser we'd had was like four or $5,000. And that was like crazy at the time. We were like, well, we're going to be able to do heaps of stuff. Um, and Alex said, yeah, there's a guy who's going to call you. So I was like, oh, I wonder what this could be. Um, and then Ned calls me. Phone call. <laughs> he literally like the the way it started. Like there wasn't a lot of like like back and forth. He was kind of like introduced himself, and then he's like, "Yes, yeah, so I want to run across the country and raise a million dollars. Are you in?" <laughs> no, we were kind of just like, "Yeah." Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get it done? And I think like that ties into like kind of who Ned is as a person. It's kind of like, yeah, let's do it, and then work out how we're gonna be able to do it. And that also ties into mobilize as well. We've always said like, okay 
let's come up with these crazy ideas uh, and then kind of push forward and work out how to get them sorted along the way. So I think that was that natural alignment. Yeah. And from there, there was like COVID happened again. There was more lockdown. So this was like 2021 uh, or it really maybe even late 2020. And for a year and a half, we were th- thinking like, is this going to happen? How are we going to do it? And then kind of for the back end of 2022, uh, we were like all focused on like, all right, now this is happening. What are the programs going to be? How are we going to set it up? And yeah, how are we going to really change the world? Because there's a big opportunity, but obviously like an obligation too, to make sure like we use the funds right. So yeah. there was a lot of thinking around that. We're going to catch up to that. Let's... um. What about with Ned? What was his kind of interaction and his connection with homelessness that you kind of felt being obviously so entrenched in the running an organization, running a charity around homelessness for a long time? What did you feel like Ned's draw was from your perspective as the CEO of We Are Mobilized? I think it's fascinating because like I told you my story yeah, about how I engaged why I went here. with that. Yeah, it, it was very, very similar, like reminiscent of when Ned told me kind of the reason why he wanted to go for his run. He was on the way to a TAFE um, and literally just walking through where he was uh, living and he just saw people experiencing homelessness. And I think whether he like gave his jumper on that first day or just like a coffee, whatever it was, as soon as he started sitting with people, he kind of had exactly the same emotion and feeling um, that I had uh, and for him and kind of he's described that as soon as he had that, he was just like all right how are we going to get out there and make a big difference so it's really interesting because it's a fairly similar kind of perception of it just starts with one conversation and that's what we've always pushed it mobilizes it's as simple as a conversation and that can lead to big things whether it's in the individual's life in your own life whatever that looks like but yeah conversations are at the core of everything yeah wow it's so cool and um yeah props to you guys and ned for what's happened so let's talk about now when the run comes around what goal did you, was a million dollars a goal that was set for that the, the raising? What did you, as an organization whose biggest fundraiser is $5,000, was it intimidating for you for that sort of money to come in with the responsibility that comes with that? Did you think we're going to reach that or where did you, where was your mind with that? Was it yeah a bit scary? I guess if you've got a business degree and you understand a bit and you've been around the ASX and been around large sums of money, you probably understand what you can do with something like that. But yeah, how was that from you as the CEO? Was it pretty scary to have that responsibility of such a large sum coming in? Yeah, it was like, it was definitely different to anything that we'd ever thought about. Um, and I think like the way that it happened as well was it was so surreal during it that like there was the big goal of a million dollars. And obviously Ned had talked about that for a long time, same to the amazing team at Bursty who kind of helped lead all of that. They were talking about it, talking about it, but it wasn't until like towards the end of the run that we really saw the accelerated ramp up. So we only had like two weeks to get our head around all of it. But I think for us, like, we weren't nervous about it, but we really, really focused on like, we need to get it right yeah. because we're being entrusted from, there was 35,000 plus donors across Australia with their funds. And we view ourselves as literally custodians of the money. Like it's not our money. It's like, how do we get it out yeah, to the yeah. people their best? So it was like, how do we get this right? Like we wanted to make sure everything was evidence-based that we spent the time thinking about it all. So there was a lot of like, focus from us on like, let's just make sure we can get something that stands up properly rather than like, you know, just guessing around it all. Yeah, we're going to get to what the programs and what you're going to do with the money is in a second. But first, I want to talk about, because you have the data from the back end of the um, the 35,000 donors, and this is something that I spoke to um, Jesse McLaughlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesse, yeah. who runs a homelessness organization. We are Ultra, who I had on the podcast recently. She actually connected me with you, which yeah. I'm super grateful for. But she went on to tell me, I guess, some stats about your guys' donations as well, but more so about how Australians as donators especially high earning australians are so so bad tell me about your data and evidence from the back end of who were the people donating to this was it corporations or was it the everyday aussie i already know the answer but tell me what you noticed from that and what you what that made you feel from that obviously probably proud to be australian of the everyday person but also a bit 
curious as to why high level earners weren't donating. Yeah, we saw the power of the people coming on this. I think it was something like it was between sixty to eighty dollars was the average donation, which like shows like to get to you know two ish million dollars <laughs> that it is incredible. Like it was just everyone just chipping in whatever they had, whether it was like a small school doing like a fundraiser, and we had like those incredible messages from kids who'd like saved up their pocket money yeah, to. Yeah. Stuff, so we got so many of these messages coming through, which was amazing. But it was really like people power there, and I think there's definitely a big opportunity for corporations to get more involved with it. And I think we're seeing it with this CSR initiative, but it's taking time um, and it's not going to happen immediately. But I think education is the most important thing. And also being able to have these conversations, like we've seen things like mental health become the frontier and you're seeing it all the time. We've seen things like climate change. Homelessness hasn't quite become that thing yet, but I think it's going to slowly get more and more awareness on it. And I think runs from like oh, like opportunities like Ned are really going to help to drive that more and more into the forefront of it. And the scary thing is with the rising cost of leaving and stuff, it's like potentially could get worse before it yeah. gets better, which is really scary. Yeah. So let's talk about the day the run finishes. <laughs> How's that feel for you as the CEO of a charity to be plastered all around the world as the charity where this huge lump sum of money is going? Like you said, it comes with a bit of response, a lot of responsibility. But like you also said, it, it's not your money. It's the, you guys are the custodians of getting that money to the people who need it most. So yeah, what was that like the day that it finished? Were you up there in Bondi? Yeah, we, we were there in Bondi. It was a uh... It was magical. It was the most incredible thing because it was obviously like one, seeing someone accomplish the most incredible, mind-blowing goal that most people on surface value would have said impossible as soon as they heard running across the country. They would have said impossible. And like seeing um, someone do that, who you've heard literally talk about this, like Ned mentioned this in 2020, 2021, for years working towards that, doing it was incredible because I think it like embedded in all of us that anything Mm. is possible if we do that. So seeing that like emotion from Ned as he crossed the line was amazing. And then I think, on the mobilized specific front as well like we wrote a post i remember just like jamming out a post in the mayhem of it all and just writing like it's not often in fact most people might never experience even what it's like to have all of your dreams come true in one moment and that's kind of what it felt like for Mm -hmm. us happened in that moment as well like we'd been dreaming we've been working there's hundreds of volunteers across the country who'd given their time like across the last few years and suddenly we're able to like bring all of these dreams that we'd had written on the whiteboards into a reality and like actually change lives and that was like so special. So yeah, it was that two-sided thing, like so stoked for Ned and over the moon because he'd done it. And then also so stoked for mobilizing the people that we can help hopefully for years to come. Yeah. Wasn't it just cool? I remember like when it was happening, like I probably found out about the run maybe two or three days in and I yeah, followed yeah. it every day. I remember yeah. just like commenting on stuff. It was like getting <laughs> so excited watching like Hamish and Annie and like Hugh Van Kylenberg yeah, yeah. and like the whole country get behind him. It was so cool. I remember posting something um, on the Good Human Factory that said, if you think you can't, Think of Ned Brockman because yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and it went super viral, and he like commented yeah. on. I'm like, it's just crazy. Did, did you get to Bondi? Or no, I no. didn't. I, I live on the Gold Coast, so yeah, I wasn't yeah. quite able to get there. I would have loved to. I had a few friends that were yeah. there, but <laughs> once again, it seems like one of those true Australian moments that yeah. if you could have been there, it was something that you do not want to miss. Which yeah. so special. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm yet. To, it's funny. I've had like three or four. I've, my interactions with Ned have all been pretty funny. It was like, I've I've walked. We've like followed each other for a minute. Just I guess because of what I do and yeah. whatever. I'm, I'm pretty sure I walked past him in an airport once in Sydney, kind of a little head nod and we kind of, he would have probably been like, I think I know that guy. Yeah. And then there was, we both spoke at the Humankind event in Sydney 
and same thing. I like saw him from across the thing and I kind of waved to him and he waved to me. And then it was funny. I was driving um, when he had his broken wrist a few months ago. I was driving along Surfers Paradise, like right next to where I live. And I guess he was speaking at a conference there. And I was like pulled up at a light and he was like standing at the thing. I was like, Ned. And he kind of like looked at me and kind of probably didn't even realize who I was and kind of like put his like broken hand in and shook my hand through my car window. I was like, I'll see you, mate, and drove off. But I will um I will get to have a chat to him one day on here. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to Yeah, you to guys that. have a fascinating I, chat, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. I can't wait to read his book. And yeah. he's just someone who I truly am so inspired by and look up to. Let's talk about this next chapter then. 12 months on, it's been probably a massive shift in your organization, a massive shift in mindset and opportunity and understanding of what you guys can do. Yeah. Um, and I love that you're not, you haven't just rushed into it the way that from speaking to you previously, it's not like you went, oh, here's the money, let's go on, like spend it. It's like, it's very strategic. You have this obviously um, in-depth business degree behind you and understanding of making money work and making it actually have impact. So yeah, what's been the process of the last 12 months? I can see, because I feel like people might be watching going like, wait, where's all this money gone? There's a lot of strategy being built into this, which I really love. It's not going to just be like thrown up against a wall. It's like, and see what sticks. It's like, no, let's really strategize use of data. So yeah, what's been the last 12 months? It seems like it's been a lot of planning here to really have impact with this, um, what, 2.4 million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's like, it's been almost frustrating at times, but in the best way possible, because we also want to just get out there yeah. and use it as much as possible. But like our goal here is to build something that's going to be there in 2030 in 2040 and mm. 2050 and can continue to do that. And to do that, we have to do it sustainably now, take a little bit of time to get the company set up, the structure set up and the programs to be the best they can. Uh, and I was telling you before we started this, we're right at that kind of start line now with the programs ready to go. They were super pumped about it. But yeah, so last 12 months, the first three or four was just making sense of it all. We didn't want to rush into things. We had to get the right company structure set up, the right people on board, like hired our first staff. Like what's that actually going to look like to get us there? And then we've also been developing the program. So I guess to give the overview of that, we've got outreach, which is still our bread and butter. It's what we do. It's how we connect with our friends on the street. And also they're able to share their stories and that will inform the programs that we can develop to help them directly. So we're going to get to seven states over the next hopefully two years um, and that will get us coverage across the country. But then we've got this really interesting and what we're really proud of pillar called direct giving. Um, and there's a methodology of caregiving called direct cash transfers. And they are very, very, very successful uh, in the developing world. So places like Africa, places like Southeast Asia, hyper-effective. And it's as simple as like giving people cash directly rather than setting up programs around them. I mean, it goes counterintuitive, I guess, to what we've had in the Western world because there's often like a lot of programs and things like that. And no one's actually tried them in Australia before. There's been two examples in the developed world, one in the US and one in Canada. Um, we're very excited to be launching Australia's first direct cash transfer program as far as we're aware. So people are going to be able to get um, legal and medical help, case management for housing and charity support. We've just, announced, uh, just signed on with our charity partner, Youth Projects. So we're going to be incredible for that. And then they're also going to get jobs. So out of that, they'll get employment. Uh, and Mobilize is going to provide funding to them directly in the form of match savings. So over a six-month period through this program, we're hoping to see people come through experiencing homelessness or at risk of it. And after six months, have a job, have significant amount of funds. I could walk out of this with like a really solid amount of cash. And then also all of the support that they needed to go into this next chapter. Mm. So yeah, yeah, that's one of them that we're really pumped about. Yeah, it's exciting. And I, and I think it probably comes back to that stigma around the six percent that we visibly see that direct cash is like oh it's just going to go get used on drugs and alcohol but it's yeah the 94 and even those six percent i'm sure five percent of those six wouldn't go and spend it on that sort of stuff anyway most people are just trying to get into 
a diff, like into a situation where they can go and live freely. Let's talk real quickly about what's your um, what's the biggest cause of homelessness? Because I think this is something that people need to hear. I think people probably go, oh, it's because of this or that. They've like, you know what I mean? Like, I guess the stigma is like, yeah, there's drugs and alcohol, but it's probably like, once again, it's probably like less than 5% is because of that. I'm sure it's like medical, family abuse. You tell me I'm making it up. Yeah, for sure. No, you're, you're <laughs> spot on with that assessment though. It's spot on. So like the first uh, causes are financial difficulties, which makes sense. People not having enough money is going to get them into homelessness as a driving factor of it. Another one's domestic and family violence. And of course, that's a pretty significant one that we're encountering across Australia. So that's one there. Um, and drugs and alcohol are not even in the top three for all of that. But what I think is really interesting, and I only had this click in my head like a few weeks ago, which I thought was the most fascinating thing, um, is we know that homelessness is really, really difficult. Like it makes a lot of sense. Um, but people don't acknowledge homelessness as a trauma in itself. Mm. People think, okay, homelessness is difficult. Yeah, that's hard. But homelessness isn't a trauma. And how do people often react to trauma? They'll act and deal with it and try to survive in many other ways. But standard traumas, you often see people will fall into drugs and alcohol at times to be able to deal with them. And often people say on the streets, I didn't have a drug and alcohol problem, but I had one once I came onto the streets as a way to cope and survive. Yeah. So it's not the leading driver of it, but it's a symptom that can happen downstream from it. And I think that's a change in perception that we really need to have yeah that is interesting i haven't really thought about it like that once you get to the street it's just like well that's my kind of last option to cope if i'm sleeping out in the cold every night if i'm trying to survive that's the one thing to probably numb the pain and distract me from the reality of the world that i'm living in but yeah i'm excited so one of the biggest programs is obviously outreach and then also doing the um yeah the direct giving tell me a little bit more about that how's that gonna work so it's helping people once they I like what you said. So it's helping them get a job, but then quite often at an entry-level job, especially maybe for someone who's coming from the situation of homelessness, might be hard to find a job that can get them because it's not – it's all well and good. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck anyway, but still have a bit of structure that keeps them there. But when you have no assets and no structure, paycheck to paycheck is not enough to get you off the ground. So you guys are direct matching what they're willing to work for themselves. Precisely. That's great. It yeah. encourages people. Like, it you only get what, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we're trying to give people like the structures that they need that after the six months, hopefully that's their platform for the new chapter. Because obviously, let's just say if you have all the support on the medical side, the mental health side, the housing side, but you don't have the funding, well, it's not going to be useful. If you've got yeah. the funding, but you're not feeling great, then you might not be able to pull it all together. And obviously, like the job is a key driver of that. So people will get match savings over a three and a six month period. At the end of the six months, I can save up to $5,000 and that'll be matched. They could walk out of it with the bonuses up to around $10,000, which is an incredible opportunity mm. um and we've got an awesome charity partner employment partners that are starting to form into that and we're hoping to see some incredible results and it's going to be evaluated by some really good research institutions uh and if yes. this works we're starting all of our direct giving programs small so we're doing them in pilots and if they work we're going to get them evaluated robustly tested and then scale them across the country that's the vision of how we're going to go and do a range of these different programs bit by bit by bit see i love that when i um my perception when I heard Ned was doing it for this small grassroots was like, oh, they're not going to be able to handle this. They're not going to be able to actually structure and use this sort of money or they're just kind of going to not blow it. Yeah, yeah. That was just somewhat my perception. Now getting to have this conversation with you and understand that like there's so much thought that's gone into this. There's so much data science and understanding, you know what, if we want to make a lasting impact, we've got this phenomenal opportunity, obviously through the fundraising that Ned did, it's allowed you guys to really do something that's going to have a lasting impact, not just your little five grand here or there. It's like, no, we can really change the lives of thousands of people 
over the coming years, which is, yeah, really special. Yeah, precisely. We always dreamt of this and we've been having these dreams long before Manifest. kind of Ned's fundraiser and we didn't know how it was going to look, but we knew that if we had the opportunity, we wanted to do things differently and we saw an opportunity to do things differently, uh, but we just didn't know how we were going to get them. We, that's why we continued working. Like we kept showing mm. up bit by bit by bit um, and now it's come through. We're just really grateful that we can actually do what we dreamt of. So it's not as if we were like, oh, this has happened. What are we going to do? Kind of pivot, turn your head left and right. This is always in the plan. We just didn't know exactly how we were going to get there. So yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's exciting. So what's exciting coming up? When uh, what are some dates? This episode's going to come out in like a month. So yeah, what um what do you got coming up? What are people? How can people get involved if they want to? Yeah, get involved with you guys. Have the donations kind of continued since now that you're on the map? It's kind of ramped up and do a bit more of a consistent thing as well. Yeah, for sure. It's been interesting, like so different workplaces, different corporates, different schools, like everyone's eager to continue flowing on. So I think the awareness Ned's raised yeah. has really come through that. So on the direct giving front, we've just signed kind of our partnership agreement with our charity partner. So we're going to start getting people into programs over the next few weeks and months. So hopefully have a few of them towards the back end of this year, which is going to be a really special moment seeing those first few people get that support. Outreaches continue to grow. So we're now in Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, and Brisbane. How can listeners get involved if they want to do it? I remember you sent me a link because we're going to maybe try and do it this past Sunday, but I got busy. But yeah, how can people get involved if they're like, you know what, maybe I can't donate, but exactly like you guys started the outreach thing, quite often the 6% on the street just need someone to come and talk to them and give them and be seen. Like that's, that's one of the most biggest human needs is to be seen and heard so yeah how can the listeners if they're like after listening to this you know what i want to get involved obviously you can go to your guys website and donate but if they want to do a little bit more than that and give back because at the end of the day and this is the work that i do based on all the science now people who are kind and people who give it actually makes us feel good yeah social genomics exactly exactly so if people want to get involved and go you know what i want to come and try and help out do my part for the community and yeah just sit with some people what um how can they get involved for sure yeah so we've got the four states for outreach so if you're in any of those uh it's wearemobilized.com slash volunteer so what's that victoria new south queensland and act act yeah so yeah, we'd love to have you guys join us there. Um, also, if you're in any of the other states or really just at home, I'd encourage, like as we talked about before, literally just having a conversation. Yeah. It's so simple. I think it's going to blow your mind once you like have that chat and you're like, wow, this was a lot simpler than I thought. I know that some of the best conversations I've ever had have just been with people that I've met just out there because like there's no barriers. Once those barriers come down, it's a real vulnerable place. There's no preconceptions. You don't need to kind of show and posture who you are. It's just two people just having a chat, meeting at a place they normally wouldn't, you know, it's such a unique thing. So yeah. I'd encourage people to get out there and have a conversation and really think about the stereotypes that we have and how we can like not perpetuate them and really try to challenge them. And it doesn't have to be just in homelessness. That's for every sector. But obviously homelessness is one that we have a lot of the stereotypes. So if we can work to go towards that, I think it'll be special. Yeah, I love that. So if someone does sign up to your guys' outreach, what does yeah. it look like? Because I feel like sometimes people like to understand what yeah, it fully yeah. is. So what does it look like? They sign up online, put yeah. their name down for outreach. How does that look? Do you go out as a team and then you split out and go and try Yeah, tell, talk me through what a Sunday looks like if you come on an outreach with We Are Mobilized. Sure. So yeah, the outreaches at the moment will be signed up through a Facebook page, but our web app is going to be going live in the not too distant future. So it's going to be a much smoother process. Uh, essentially, you go out, we've got teams. So there's like outreach coordinators and leaders um, and you'll split up, as you said, into groups of like threes and fours. And the good thing is like, you'll never be by yourself having a conversation. So all the team leaders have been there before they've done their training and they'll lead the chats. And See, I think that's, Sorry to cut you off. Mm. I think that's a really good way to start if you feel like, to be honest, someone like me, 
I mean, I'm happy to, but I'm also someone that probably hasn't ever really done that. But I feel like I probably could now having this chat. But I think for someone who might feel a bit nervous and uncomfortable to do it, it's a beautiful way to start. So, yeah, so you have team leaders that kind of teach you and guide you through, um, yeah, the best way to communicate and, yeah, have that care. And they've got like care packages as well. So we view them, as we said, like an icebreaker. Um, but really we go down like, hey, is there anything in here that you want? But really it's the conversation. It's like, hey, how's your day been? And from there, the team leaders, as you said, they'll guide the conversation. Uh, and then it just flows from where it does. But I think what's really important, what we um, like mandate in it is we have a pre-briefing. So when you rock up on the day, you're not just going to be thrown out there and like, wow, what's happening? Like the coordinators will guide yeah. you through it. And at the end, we have a debriefing. And that's a chance to unload whatever's happened out there because it can be challenging conversations it can be vulnerable it can be really difficult at times but we make sure that we have that debriefing so everyone feels at least in a good place and can like reconcile what they've happened out there mate it sounds like you guys are doing such good work it's um it's been phenomenal getting to learn all about it you've just got one of the most pure hearts ever you're like the epitome of a good human i bloody love it you're the perfect guest for this podcast and i've loved getting to know every minute of your story i'm so excited for the future i'm um yeah excited to any way that myself and the good human factory can help if there's anything yeah that we can do along the journey and support and partner up with you guys i'm, I'm all for it i think what you do is like the best work in the world it's so selfless and so special the i mean it's just the manifestation of ned brockman into your organization is it's just the, such a perfect match. He's such a good human. You're such a good human. And now having the resources to actually make a massive impact because there's so many charities out there who don't have, I guess, I don't want to say don't have the heart that you do, but there's a lot of charities that are quite often now that I'm sort of seeing the industry quite a bit with mental health and whatnot that you can see get so big that there's just so much going on that the impact maybe isn't the focus of it. Well, it is a focus, but I don't know. You can see with you, it's all about really trying to make sure every dollar gets stretched as far as it can and the impact goes super far. So you should be super proud, man. I'm so grateful for you. Yeah, no, we're very grateful for that. I think like it's cool because we are small enough and lean enough to be able to innovate and try new things and all of that. So I think that's kind of what it is. Is like we can try different things that might be harder for like larger organizations to be able to do, but we do want to work with all these organizations. So for our work, it's like working with charity partners to be able to supercharge what they're doing mm. because they might not be able to do like all of that nimbleness because they've got the incredible yeah. structure set up that will you know make sure that it's sustainable but we want to work with these organizations so yeah i think there's a special niche that we'll be able to fill in that we're really pumped about mate i can't wait to watch the future i do finish all of good humans podcasts with the same question and i'm so excited to hear what your yeah. answer is to this so what does being a good human mean to noah yang <laughs> take your time um <laughs> mate, these are a couple it's, of good questions yeah. no, 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 have a think no no stress I think it's as simple as uh, leaving the world in a better place. But I also think there's a second part to it, which is like trying to expand the consciousness of the people that you interact with. I think like, you know, when you have those conversations with people and you're like, wow, I think about the way slightly differently mm. than I did before it. I think that's being a good human. We don't have to do that. We have the baseline of like just doing the right thing. But if you can make the world a better place for other people and the way that they think about the world, I think that's a special imprint that you can leave. So that's, yeah, that's what I think being a good human is. Yeah. And I think it really comes from authenticity. And that's how I feel with you. It's not trying to force down someone's throat your ideas, but it's coming from a place of authenticity and true belief. And then that's where people really start to actually make a difference rather than doing it because it's kind of the right thing to do, doing it because you want to do it, yeah. doing it because it's part of your value and part of your changing consciousness. And mate, you're absolutely doing that for so many people. You should be so proud. And man, if there's um 
yeah, any last things you want to say, any where people can find you, any um, yeah, any last things you want to leave for the listeners? Um, I guess yeah, where can people find you on social media and stuff for people? I'll leave it all in the show notes, but yeah, last little chance to plug anything. So on we are mobilized uh, on all the main things. So on your Instagrams, your TikToks, your Facebooks, websites, we are mobilized.com. Uh, we're gonna have the web app coming up soon. The only thing I want to leave people with, and that I think is so important, is like people are always trying to do like what's the next exciting thing like where can they go what can they do i think like the world would be a much better place if people just found what they enjoyed doing and that takes a bit of time and self-reflection and patience but if you work out what you enjoy doing and what you can do for a really long time just find it do it stick at it and it'll end up kind of going much better than you ever thought and you've done this with this podcast and everything on the good human side but i think yeah the more time that people spend doing what they love and doing what they enjoy versus what they think the world has prescribed them to do i think we'll all be much happier and good humans Mate, so that's that you're an absolute legend thank you so much i appreciate every minute of this chat i know my listeners will too but thanks for coming on good humans podcast thanks brother hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 